Karlsson, Karlsson, världens bästa Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, hoj här kommer Karlsson. Karlsson, Karlsson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Karlsson. Karlsson, 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 Yes, welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who have learned to no longer get our hopes up about anything. I'm your host, Dylan Dubrowski, with me to break down a bunch of players that we thought would be good last year, then they totally stank, Brian Com. It's hard to come in when you lead into my name with totally stank. I, like, I feel like that could be edited against me, but I'm still very happy to be here. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. To air is human, uh, and our patrons are all human. We're going to put the mistake on them. Uh, I own it, too. Uh, there's a lot of guys that we got wrong going into last season and their fantasy uh, output, and we just spent an episode talking about all the guys who outperformed their projections. Now we're going to talk about the guys who are big Fat disappointments. Well, uh, big lean disappointments. They're all in great shape, but uh, we'll have to get into the nitty gritty about why exactly we and our patrons were wrong about them. Yeah, people sometimes like to make fun of Phil Kessel and the shape he's in. Guess what? Phil Kessel, he outperformed his projection. He was great. So all these players in good shape, maybe it's not even that amazing to be like that because uh, Kyler Yamamoto, I don't know what he's benching, but he definitely wasn't putting up points last year. So we'll get to him and a bunch of other guys in just a sec. And maybe some of them will actually be really good sleepers for next year. Players who maybe didn't meet their projections for some reason that we can excuse. And then other people are going to be down on them going into next year. And that's your chance to get a late draft pick that potentially has potential to have the points that we expected them to have going into this year. Right. And of course, everything we talk about the show today should be going into your your draft notebook that you're going to reference as you're drafting your team. And by the way, if you're not drafting a cupful team yet this season, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, you should come join us. Come play. We're nice. We have fun. Uh, it's our seventh season running the Cupful, and it's going to be our best season yet. If you're not familiar with it, uh, it's a like the Cupful is for everyone. Everybody can play regardless of your skill level. Our leagues are safe and moderated. You can find your own skill level. We have uh, like tiers for new, casual, competitive players. Elon and I, as commissioners, make sure they're active managers in every single cupful division. So, like, your league isn't ruined by inactive teams in critical weeks. We do all the best we can to keep things fair and fun. And we have this, like, bumping Discord community where you have this special dedicated chat room for just your division to talk to other managers and to talk a cupful with the other 300 plus managers we expect to have in this year's seventh season of the Cupful. So if you haven't started climbing the, the, the Cupful pyramid all the way up to tier one, if that's your goal to be the ultimate fantasy hockey champion, you need to join the biggest and best fantasy league in the world. And I say that humbly, but also like we're pretty proud of it. Uh, so if you want to know more, Cupful.com, K-K-U-P-F-L.com. We'll tell you more. I'll put in the show notes too. 
Also, check out uh, DauberHockey.com, which is the site that we're presented by because it's the place to go for all your fantasy hockey news and notes. One thing I like about Dauber Hockey is they have these ramblings every day, which are amazing, just breaking down the recent fantasy news. And then every, once a week, you get your 21 fantasy rambles if you even don't have time to read the ramblings every day. The most recent one broke down like 21 of the most interesting things from the past week. So you get your news and notes if you want a lot. If you want a little, it's all there for you. DauberHockey.com, great site. But Brian, let's get into this and talk about all of these players that I have this spreadsheet where I took all of the projections from last year with the Patron Projection Project, and then I sorted it by how different the projections were to what actually happened. I looked at the percent difference. The first, like, eight guys on this list here, Brian, are players that I don't even want to talk to you about. They did so badly that I'm pretty sure they all have no fantasy relevance, and it's not worth our podcast time. So I'm just going to run down some of the worst projections, and you let me know at the end of this list if there's anyone you even want to mention. But it starts with uh, our the worst player in terms of competing versus projection was Alex Edler, who the patrons projected for a healthy 39 points. He ended up with no goals and eight assists, eight points in 52 games. So that was obviously a huge bust. Uh, Edler is now going to Los Angeles and we'll see if he'll be able to score a goal for the Kings. Uh, Kyle Turris, the patrons projected for 42 points. We thought maybe he'd be in the top six on the Oilers ended up only playing 27 games, five points. So forget about him. Eric Stahl, you know, he was going to Buffalo. We thought he'd be the line two center. Remember how we were all like, wow, why would Minnesota trade Eric Stahl for Marcus Johansson? What a terrible... And both of them are like fantasy irrelevant. They were both UFAs. I think Johansson is signed somewhere. Stahl's still a UFA. So forget about that guy. Patriots projected him for four, 54 points last year on average. He only had 13. Uh, Andreas Janssen on New Jersey was projected for 47. We thought he'd be like a top six guy on the Devils, get a similar role to, you know, opportunities he's had in Toronto. Total bust, 11 points in 50 games, now likely pushed out of the top six, especially with Thomas Tatar in the picture. Uh, Zach Cassian, need I say more? We were, you know, he didn't end up playing with McDavid. That was the reason why people had a high projection for him. Jeff Skinner, I don't even know. Some, some, we only projected him for 39 points. We were still way off. Like, he, he couldn't even match that, uh. okay? Nikita Gusev, we projected 60 points for him. Remember, like, in 2019-20, Gusev started slow and had a really strong finish with New Jersey. We thought he'd be able to keep it up. Uh, no, he stunk. 10 points in 31 games overall. He ended the year with Florida. He's a UFA right now. We'll see if he's still in the league. Uh, Oscar Lindblom, he's actually somewhat interesting, right? We projected him for 50. He obviously missed a lot of the previous season with cancer. And, and this year, he played uh, 50 games and had only 14 points. I did talk to Charlie O'Connor about Philly, and he did mention Lindblom as a potential dark horse for next season now that you know he's maybe had a full summer to train normally so he's somewhat interesting but probably not worth drafting in your leagues so brian of that list is there anyone that you think is worth talking about in terms of preparing for next season i think there's at least a theme here that's worth addressing and it's one we've talked about on the show and on our last patron cast that was just this past wednesday uh it's like an ama for patrons i'm, I'm done promoting stuff but uh there there it is patreon.com slash keeping carlson okay sorry uh there's a theme here amongst all these guys uh kyle Torres, eric stahl andreas jansen all on new teams and what we've said is beware players who are changing teams right you you gotta you gotta take into account that things are never going to go as well as you hope or 
not always going to go as well as you hope. Sure, there's sometimes a great match between player and team. For example, I think Tatara and New Jersey will be a great match this year, but I've learned from the past to not get too far ahead of myself. You know, we saw Kyle Torres being someone who could play a solid third-line center role in Edmonton, uh, fell out of favor very quickly there. Eric Stahl, same thing in Buffalo. I mean, everyone stunk on Buffalo, but things didn't go well for him there. Andreas Janssen moved from Toronto to New Jersey. Also a really tough go with his new team. So I think that's one uh, lesson that's really underlined here is that anybody who is changing teams, you got to just put a little flag next to their name on draft day. And if you're comparing them against someone who's pretty similar and you're starting to get stars in your eyes thinking that everything's going to align when this player gets their new team, it might be just as likely that's all going to come crashing down. So beware of anybody changing teams. There's three great examples right there uh, of cases where that's happened. The others, I mean, Alex Edler in Vancouver, uh, the season was a mess for COVID. Um, Zach Cassian in Edmonton got bumped pretty soon. So I, I think the lesson there is you never want to rely too hard. This is something we've been saying for years on those third wheel complementary players that are only doing what they're doing because of deployment. Even Zach Cassian, who Edmonton loves up there, uh, couldn't hold on to his spot. So you always have to be a little more careful drafting those guys. Jeff Skinner, I don't think we made him like, uh, he was projected 39 points, which is not fantasy relevant. I don't know what to say about him. Maybe this year he'll get 39 points. Okay, enough. (laughs) No, 39 points? Is that too high? Yeah. Okay. I think so. All right. And then Gusev, well, he seemed to fall out of favor in New Jersey. And remember when he was traded to Florida, everyone rushed for him as a free agent. It's different in season, of course, but that uh, went kaboom in a bad way. And uh, Oscar Lindblom was someone who was coming back from a long layoff. So, you know, you can see reasons from each of these players. It's like, yeah, there's a contextual factor here that some players can overcome. But maybe it's just, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But it seems like there is a lesson we've espoused in the past that applies to all these guys who missed their mark the most. Yeah, so Brian, you're saying that you've learned this lesson, like Andreas Janssen went to New Jersey, didn't perform. Going into this season, I feel like you've been pretty high on Thomas Tatar and Dougie Hamilton and expecting them to be able to continue what they did going to New Jersey. Do we need to reassess? Well, I acknowledge that. I said I think Tatar is a great fit for New Jersey, but in the mock drafts we're doing um, with other patrons, I am giving Tatar that penalty in the draft. I'm holding back and he is falling like, so I can still grab him a few rounds later than I think where he should land. But I I think I am showing some restraint and saying, I think he can be this good, but I'm going to draft him as if he's this good. And no one else seems to be biting too early on him either. Yeah. I'm looking at our mock draft we've been doing and Dougie Hamilton went as the second. Is this true? The second defenseman went at McCargo. Okay, sorry about this, everybody. Okay, no, McCarr went first, then John Carlson. You took John Carlson above Dougie Hamilton, Brian, I see. And then Hamilton went as the third defenseman off the board. For that reason, because he was changing teams. Yeah, I think I might drop him a little bit more. Maybe I'd take, like, a headman over uh, Dougie Hamilton. Like, I'm not going to drop him too much, but maybe, like, you you know, you could just, you could rely on Victor Hedman to give you your 60 points. Dougie Hamilton, we expect him to be able to do that, but, yeah, who knows if things don't fit so well on New Jersey like they have in Carolina. So, okay. With that, let's get to some players who I think will be fantasy relevant in just a sec. 
Oh yeah, I was I was gonna say I drafted Tatar in the thirteenth round in another, and just to give a sense of the guys who went just before him, uh, skaters anyway: Cole Caulfield, Yusuf Alamaki, Patrick Hornqvist, and right after him, Jared McKinn, Andrew Mangiapane, Gallagher, Arvidsson, which I thought was a good pick by you, Elon. There's another compliment for one of your picks. So uh, so yeah, if Tatar was still out there, would you have preferred? Because Arvidsson's also changing teams. Would you have preferred Tatar or Arvidsson? I think Arvidsson, actually. Tatar, I'm not as high on. Like, the fact that he's getting benched in Montreal, like, in playoff games, makes me a little bit concerned that it's not so easy for him to earn the coach's favor. I think that uh, Arvidsson is going to have a nice fit there in L.A., and I know you say it'll be a nice fit in New Jersey, but I guess Arvidsson just seems to me as, like, a safer guy. And also, Arvidsson has the potential to score a lot more goals. I think Tatar is more of a disher and a couple, you know, to get more points for goals. So, uh, we'll see. It'll be That'll be a fun one to check in on at the end of the year. I'm hoping Arvidsson does well. I've got him in my dynasty league, and I was, I'll be honest, I was very happy when I saw him get traded. I don't know if LA was the perfect destination for him for fantasy upside, but definitely better than Nashville. But okay, so Brian, let's get to our list of players who I think might still have fantasy relevance next year, even though we were so wrong with our projections. And like I said at the top, Kyler Yamamoto is the number one guy here. A huge disparity between what we were expecting and what he gave us. So of course, he had that insane run at the end of 2019-20, leading the Patriots to project him for a 65-point pace. And hey, they had a good reason to, because they expected him to play with Leon Dreisaitl, and he did. But still, somehow, only managed 21 points in 52 games. That's a 33-point pace for the 22-year-old Yamamoto. How, I don't even know how that's possible when Dreisaitl's getting, like, pacing for 100 points and meet or plus, and then his line mate can't pace for more than 33. He hasn't been picked yet in our slow draft as of round 16, which was uh, uh, earlier this morning. I wonder if he's gone since then. I'll check while you're talking. But yeah, I'm uh, curious to know if he's even someone that you consider drafting in your drafts or if, from what we saw last season, like even if he gets this second line deployment, are we even expecting him to be very relevant at all? Like Even if he could improve on last year, go from a 33-point pace to a 50-point pace, still not that great. No, it's not that great. And I don't think there's much reason to think like he didn't get a real unfair play last season the season before when he you know he tore up the league towards the end and everyone got super excited and yeah he looked legit talented but we talked about how this quote-unquote chemistry was not something that could be sustained yeah he Drysaddle and Nugent Hopkins were on fire, but in a totally crazy way. And if even if they're all talented, there was no way they were going to produce they were, the way they were producing down the stretch of 1920. Uh, that said, I, I didn't see it cooling off to the extent that it did in 2021. And I think Yamamoto doesn't have anywhere to really look to say, like, I don't see any unfair variance. I don't even see, like, a huge step back. I just see someone who didn't really make the most of his position in the lineup. He was with Drysidle and Cahoon, and we know that never worked out for, you know, Cahoon either. And this year, if Tourist holds as third line center or Ryan McLeod or someone else does it, uh, that would mean that Yamamoto gets to play with Drysidle and Nugent Hopkins, maybe for the full season. So I think that makes Yamamoto a, a decent swing to take, as big a question mark as he is. I think one reason to just keep passing him or passing on him is that he barely shoots 69 shots in 52 games last season. He was really frustrating for anyone who did take a shot on him because he didn't take a shot for the managers who picked him up. So while Yamamoto isn't a bad bet for a bounce back, I, I think there's only so much I'm ready to expect, especially because I, I don't expect any kind of power play role. I kind of am wondering if it would be fair to look at Yamamoto the same way we look at Andrew Mangiapane 
who also has great line mates, uh, probably is going to play within a 45 to 55 point range, has breakout potential, but low ceiling because of his role. And I think the chance of, the chance available to him of breaking out isn't really that awesome. So, uh, you know, while Yamamoto doesn't really fit the Manjapani kind of mold of being this good top six complementary player, I think that's about where I've got him. So say 50 points, plus or minus five, with potential to really explode. But I think that's not something you want to uh, bet on too heavily when you're acquiring him in a draft or trade. Yeah, it just seems like like we were talking last episode about Matt Zuccarello. I feel like Zuc is someone who I'm expecting to have more potential to explode than in Yamamoto, just because Zuccarello is getting that deployment. Like you said, it's really hard to imagine Yamamoto breaking that top power play without an injury because Pugliarvi looked good there. And now they also have Zach Hyman jumping into the picture who might take that spot. So yeah, I'd be a little concerned. Like he's obviously not going to be nothing because he's going to be playing with Drysaddle, but we saw last year that maybe that's not enough for him to be like a super fantasy relevant guy. I don't forget a lot of that really great run from two years ago came with McDavid injured. And so, I mean, the Oilers are definitely hoping that that won't be the case again. Uh, all right. So next up, let's talk about uh, Evgeny Dadanov, but maybe not for too long. because We just talked about him in an episode recently. We were breaking down all of the offseason transactions, but the patrons projected Dadanov for a 58-point pace with the Ottawa Senators on his new team. Instead, he paced for 30. So basically half of what we were hoping for. Uh, interesting, David Shane, in his interview with Ben in the 32 Beats series, he said that he thinks that Dadanov is a good bet to get a shot on the top power play. Because, you know, that power play for Vegas had a lot of trouble. And they think that's one of the things that they wanted to get in Dadanov. He was really successful on the power play in Florida. So maybe he gets top power play. Probably still, I would assume, bottom six. So hard for me to expect fantasy-relevant production even if he does get like whatever 15 power play points so so what do you think about dad enough for next year is was, was that interview with david shane enough for you to want to give him another shot or after you saw him in ottawa are you like definitely not a guy i'm interested in drafting well we've seen what happens to guys who doesn't who don't have great five on five deployment but have a top power play role they're barely rosterable, right? Unless you're hunting down those power play points and they're doing really well there. There certainly is room for him in, like, on the top power play unit. Uh, like, that doesn't surprise me to hear. Also, you say bottom six and I say top nine for where Evgeny Dadanov is likely to play in Vegas. But yeah, I, I think that ceiling is pretty low for him. I think this is probably a better fit in Vegas than what he had in Ottawa. But remember, he's still being centered at five on five by Nolan Patrick, who I hope can still be some version of the player he's expected to be when he was drafted. But if Nolan Patrick isn't, then Dadanov is playing with Nolan Patrick and Matthias Janmark, uh, which isn't really the best situation to produce. And that's only while, like potentially only while Alex Tuck is injured which is going to be for a couple months. But still, uh, Dadanov isn't someone I'm, I'm about to get super excited about because he's in Vegas. There's a lot of guys ahead of him on that depth chart. And while I don't give him full blame for his output in Ottawa, I, I don't think it was a match between player and team there. There's one more example of things not going well. Uh, and Ottawa was not a great place for anyone to produce last season. So I'm not going to hang a lot of what happened last season on Dadanov, but I still just don't see a clear opportunity, a clear path for him to fantasy relevance. Yeah, I mean, I guess, like, another player who could be on this list, I didn't put him on because we weren't so off on him, but we were a little, is Riley Smith, who had a really bad down year last year. So he was, you know, that right wing on the line with Marsh, so William Carlson. So theoretically, if Riley Smith continues to struggle, maybe Dadanov has a shot at taking his spot. So there is some upside there. Like, he's someone I'll have on my watch list. I'm interested to see how he'll do on his new team. Yeah. Like, 
basically Vegas like traded away Mark Andre Fleury to open up cap space that they used a big chunk of it on Dadanov. So obviously they figured he's worth something to them. So we'll see if he can deliver on what they're hoping he'll do. Uh, next up, let's go to someone who maybe was even more disappointing than Dadanov, just because we had such high expectations for Rasmus Dahlin going into last year. Like I know we already mentioned really quickly how Eric Stahl didn't do much, and yeah, we were kind of high on him, but Dahlin, man, we were expecting the Patriots projected him for sixty-two point pace after he had you know fifty-six point pace in his sophomore season, and so we were expecting he's only going to grow. He's finally not a teenager anymore. He's going to be twenty. You know, we expected obviously Eichel to be a big part of this team, and he wasn't. But yeah, Dahlin totally fell off. A sad thirty-four point pace. Of course, it was a weird year. Like Buffalo was weird, but also I think this year's going to be a weird year for Buffalo. So I'm not exactly sure. Like, can we expect him to at least like approach say the fifty-point pace that he was on like as a rookie and in his like second year? You know, like I, I'm just wondering like, can we at least get him back on track somewhat? Or are you expecting another like total bust like last year with only that thirty-four point pace? Like at the very least, like Ristolainen's gone. Not that he was any competition, but for like deployment anyways. But like Dalin's going to have his all he wants of the top power play time like lots of ice time i'm sure owen power not that he would he'd also be a risk but he's been announced to go back to michigan so it's like it's all dalene can he do better than a 34 point pace uh it's so it's sad this is a sad situation because rasmus dalene as he was coming up i think we talked about him in the almanacs we did when we were doing our our off-season audio almanacs uh, that as a teenager, he kept breaking records and like putting himself in elite company. So to see him be on a team that basically imploded last season and that implosion is taking them like I, I, I think it's setting them back three to five years in a rebuild, potentially losing Eichel, losing Hall, losing Eric Stahl, like to some extent, not so much Eric Stahl, but I mean, Buff- Reinhardt. Buffalo, yeah, Sam Reinhardt briefly. Buffalo suddenly seemed like a, a fun destination for a free agent to go. And now it's just like, oh, no, we're going back to the dark ages. And Rasmus Dahlin is like one of the lone holdovers with elite uh, potential who's still going to be playing there. And, I mean, they need they need him. He had tons of time on ice last year. Career high, 21 minutes and 40 seconds per night. Saw 70% share of Buffalo's power play minutes. But the result was terrible, and I, I really think you can write off the whole season for anyone in Buffalo. Throw it out for Hall, throw it out for Eichel, throw it out for Reinhardt, uh, even like there was some good, but throw it out for Darlene. I think the the upshot for Rasmus Darlene is that his season, I don't think was quite as bad as it looked. Remember, this is a year where everything went wrong for Buffalo. Darlene saw a 37% share of goals scored while he was on the ice, but he his expected goal share was 48%. So that just points to like bad goaltending or bad moments or the Sabres not cashing in as maybe they should have been. Also, only 6% of all shots taken while Darlene was on the ice went in, which is, that's low. That's really unfortunate. Um, so, but I point to these like sad things that happened last year and I'm looking at Buffalo this year and so much has changed, probably not for the better. Could the, the best possible outcome might be that the Sabres are held steady from last season. And of course, the more likely outcome is that they've gotten worse. And I don't see any indication for all that I want to forgive Darlene for that he deserved much more than what he got last season. Like, there's no way I could spot him enough 
like regression or like sympathy points to get them all the way up to a 50 point pace. Maybe 45 points would be something I, I could have allowed seeing from Darlene. Like I still feel like that's generous though to say that's what he deserved. So uh, in a draft, it's tough because his name still holds a lot of value and there's still a lot of upside there by from him as an individual, but on that team, Man, I, I just don't see a lot. Like, who's going to be on the top power play with Rasmus Dahlin? And, and that's why I wouldn't want him as anything more. You know, last year, he could be drafted as your number one defenseman, number two as well. This year, I wouldn't want him as anything more than my third defenseman on my roster, and possibly not even that. I hope to see a lot of shots from him. I hope to see some power play production. But 40 to 45 points seems like a, a likely range for him from what I'm seeing. And that's uh, it's sad to say. It really is, especially because we, we've lost some high-end defensive producers over the last couple of years, and Darlene was ready, could have stepped in, and he, he it just doesn't seem like he's in a position where he can. Yeah, it's interesting. In uh, our slow draft, Mason took Darlene and Brent Burns on the turn uh, between, I think it was round eight and nine. And so obviously two defensemen who were very disappointing last year. We'll see if either of them can bounce back. But yeah, I think I'm with you, Brian. I'm not expecting more than like 45 points, like at the high end. And like you bring up that power play. We would talk last episode about Jacob Chikrin and you were saying how Chikrin doesn't have someone to play with. And I brought up like some names that I thought were at least somewhat interesting. In Buffalo, it's like really dire. Like we're looking at, you're asking about who's going to be on the top power play. So I guess like maybe Dylan Cousins is ready. He's 20, so we'll see. But he's probably their highest-end guy at this point. They've got Olafson. Uh, they've got Casey Middlestad, who had a bit of a resurgence last year. Then if, if there's no Eichel, like, that's it. Like, I know that before I was saying Jeff Skinner's nothing, but he still might be, like, their fourth-best offensive player. And I don't know. After that year, I'm looking at their depth chart, and it's like, nobody. They brought in Vinny Hinnestroza. They brought in, like, Anders Bjork. I don't know. It's it's bad. It's bad. (laughs) It's really bad. Like I am also. I'm if anyone watching us on YouTube, I'm looking down the depth chart and just silently shaking my head. There's nothing. There's nothing there. Like yeah, hope for Olufsen, Cousins. I guess does Jeff Skinner get on? I'm not not to bring up Jeff Skinner again, but does he get on there just by default? It's uh, it ain't pretty. I'm sorry to Sabres fans. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe you'll get a really good pick in the next draft or five. Uh, I so, guess okay. <laughs> we should also not totally rule out. I've seen it might have been Dauber who like shared a take on Twitter the other night saying he thinks Eichel is a saber until at least December. So I, I don't know. Like we, we've been following all the crazy medical drama. Would he play without getting treatment or would he need to go to get treatment first? Would Buffalo ever let him? Whatever. I wonder if if there's any chance Eichel plays games. Of course, that helps Dahlin's value at least for a month or two. In that case, you could pump and dump him, right? Like try and like get him with Eichel and then sell while things are going well. But I, I don't even see that as a possibility. That's like a last ditch strategy move. I also saw a take recently that like Eichel still hasn't had like the medical treatment that he wants. I don't know if he's like capable of playing right now. Like I think he wants to get this like surgery. So who even knows? Ah, let's move on from the Sabres. I don't want to talk about them anymore this episode. I guess the Dauber take was that he'll still be a Saber in December, but not play, not necessarily playing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so forget that. I, that was dumb. Eichel's not playing. Yeah, forget Eichel for uh, the. I'll, in general, by the way, we talked about this on the Patreon cast. Like, do you draft Eichel in your fantasy leagues? I said I'm a wimpy little non leader, and I would not. Obviously, some people might want to use a late pick on him. Obviously, if you could take him, throw him in your IR, it's okay. But people wanted to use a high pick on Eichel, like you might not get many games out of him. 
and who knows like even if he plays at all like if buffalo has to trade him i don't think he's gonna play for buffalo but okay like i said no more buffalo let's do let's keep the d run going though and talk about the disappointing d men so another guy that the patrons projected to have a really good year was ryan pulak and why not he paced for a career high 42 points in 2019-20 the patrons were expecting maybe even a slight uptick going into last year we projected him for 46 points on average and instead ryan pulak laid an egg only 17 points in 56 games that's a 25 point pace this can't be what, like, Ryan Pulak is, right? Like, this is a guy who had already kind of established himself as a solid 40-point guy. I saw him as, like, the quintessential, like, you know, lock him in for 40 points. You're going to get also lots of peripherals, decent number of shots. Now Nick Letty's gone, so you'd think the power play opportunities only increase for Pulak. Like, there's Dobson and Pulak. That's basically it. Uh, so, I don't know. I feel like... Whatever happened last year, I guess you'll tell me, but I still see Pulak as a good bet. Maybe like a nice potential value pick you get at the end of your drafts, or am I dreaming here? Should I let go of Brian Pulak? I don't think so. I don't think you should, although I get the temptation, because for years we've been waiting for him to take on a more offensive role, and especially with Noah Dobson in the picture now, it seems less and less likely that he's really ever going to get a, an offensive role, like clear cut, that he can really run away with. But the upside for Pulak is that maybe he still can be that steady 40, 45-point guy with a solid floor of peripherals. And the one thing I could say about Pulak that I I couldn't say about Darlene, well, actually, I could probably say it to some extent about Darlene, but I think Pulak had more bad luck than someone like Rasmus Darlene. Like Pulak, he played the same number of minutes the year before, and his shot rates, they they felt little, but it wasn't anything that, that should have sent him crashing down the way he did. What did send Pulak crashing down was that he only scored twice on 121 shots on goal. And I just mentioned his falling shot rates. You know, if I only scored twice over 121 shots... I might stop shooting the puck too. Uh, his usual five and a half percent shooting percentage. I would have given him another four or five goals on 120 shots. So give him some slack for that unfortunate shooting percentage. And then he had one single power play point in 56 games. Now he doesn't have the biggest power play role, but he has a role that means he, I, I think he was really unfortunate to have that little going for him on the power play pacing, I guess, for fewer than two power play points in an 82-game season. We've talked about, on the last episode, we talked about a lot of guys who overperformed from the second unit. Pulak is on the opposite end of that spectrum. We're like, yeah, he pays for fewer than two power play points, but I think Pulak should probably be closer to, say, in the 8-10 to 10 power play point range this season if things normalize for him. Underneath it all, as you mentioned, Elon, Pulak has these steady hits and blocks still. So that peripheral value is still there. Uh, nothing really changes with Letty leaving because Pulak is right, righty and Letty's a lefty. So Pelik, Adam Pelik is the one who probably gains from Letty's departure and becomes like, no doubt, top, he was already like a top pair left-handed defenseman. No, but Brian, I was talking about on the power play though, to be fair, like oh, Pulak okay. only played 43% on the power play and Letty played a lot more. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like Dobson is the obvious one to step in, but you're right. Uh, Pulak still has a shot. And uh, we'll see if he gets it. I mean, this is the this is the song we've been singing about Pulak for a few years. So I'm not banking on him getting that shot. But even if he doesn't on the top power play, I still think 40 points with peripherals is enough to make him relevant in a lot of leagues that do reward his hits and blocks. 
Yeah, I'll be honest. When I was prepping for my couple draft last year, I was thinking, like, I just want to get a couple, like, solid floor defensemen. And I ended up having, like, Ryan Pulak and Jacob Chikorin is pretty much, like, the same thing. You know, I was like, oh, a solid 40-point guy that takes some shots, has good peripherals. Lucky for me, I ended up with Chikorin and not with Pulak. I could have flipped a, a coin. But who knows, maybe this year... I'm not saying Pulak is going to have a season like Chikrin just had, but I, I, the way I'm thinking of Pulak now is the same way I was thinking about Chikrin last year. So, I don't know. I still kind of like him, but he was definitely a huge disappointment last year. So, at least, you know, with all these guys, you're going to be able to get them at a huge discount compared to last year. Uh, Brian, so we've got now the most heartbreaking defenseman of all, and then some interesting forwards before we end the show. And we'll get to all of them in just a sec. You're listening to Keeping Carlson. Okay, we are back. I wonder if people listen to that uh, insurance commercial that I recorded like a month ago that keeps playing like twice for every single episode I've been listening. But uh, uh, I wonder if uh, Blue Wire is ever going to switch that out at some point. But anyway, uh, okay, so we're back on the show and I want to talk about Eric Carlson. Uh, I'm just going to tear the Band-Aid off. He's a guy that we keep expecting to be better. Like going into last year, we thought, okay, he's had some injury trouble. Finally, Carlson's healthy. He's ready to have somewhat of a return, maybe not to his like Sens numbers, but maybe at least be a 60 plus point guy. Patrons projected him for 63 points. And Eric Carlson responded with his worst ever season, 22 points in 52 games for a 35 point pace. It's so sad. I'm tearing up reading this, Brian. Okay, so obviously uh, we have to say he's going to bounce back a little bit, right? Like there's no way. Eric Carlson's not a 35 five-point defenseman. I just can't accept that. You shouldn't. I, I don't think you need to accept that, although he's really embarrassing us. We, like, we can't... Anyway, I, the, our show title is no longer Actionable Fantasy Advice. Carlson has played himself out of keeper territory, but that means that he's available in your drafts, and perhaps you should uh, try and sneak him onto your roster at the right time. I wouldn't put him on as your top defenseman, of course. I wouldn't put him on as your second defenseman. I would be looking at, to him as like a third defenseman option, which is what I said about Darlene, but if I had to pick between the two, I think I'd lean Eric Carlson. Last season, uh, stunk. For Carlson, and that's to put it lightly, uh, his five on five point rates were down. Like they were cut in half. Like that's just his, that's a, that's a fancy way to say his production was cut in half. Uh, his points participation was down to 30%, which is a career low for someone like Eric Carlson, who is just a key cog. Like he runs offense when he's on the ice. He was the Ottawa Senators offense for a large chunk of his career. But I think, I, I think Carlson can find a way back. Um, to being where he was the season prior, which was nearly on a 60 point pace. But there's reason to think that the, the heavy, there's lots of reason to think that the days of really elite upside Eric Carlson are definitively behind us because last season was the second season in a row where Carlson's shot rates were, uh, just horrific. Uh, like a far cry from his first year in San Jose and his Ottawa days before that, his second and third years in San Jose, he's not shooting as much as he's not attempting to shoot as often as he once did. And like, it's a noticeable drop. And it's a similar story on the power play too. He's not shooting as much there too. Uh, he also did suffer from a 9% on ice shooting percentage on the power play. Uh, and to just put that in context, that means that his teammates were scoring on the power play, like converting on the power play at the rate that most lines convert at, at five on five. So even with the extra man, the Sharks couldn't turn more shots into goals than most teams do at five on five. And that's not necessarily on Carlson. So that's one reason to think, okay, so his, his, 
power play on ice shooting percentage could get better. His IPP could get better. But he's been in a rut for two years now. And you could blame the team in front of him to some extent. But also, uh, Carlson has been bad and absolutely not keeper worthy. Like I said, that 70 point upside seems to have disappeared. I feel like he has a shot at getting back to 60, but it's a long one. I like there's still upside for an explosion to think that like whatever's ailed him is over, but it's really hard to think it's going to happen. And it's not a big bet. I'd want to place. I I think the question for me is where do we find Carlson between the last two seasons where under the hood, he's looked like a similar player two years ago at 60 point pace last year at 35 points under the hood. He actually looked like similarly sad so I wonder if we split the difference and we say, okay, 47 points is about what you should expect from Eric Carlson this year. Elon, does that does that feel right to you? Like, would you go over or under or tell me tell me where you're at? I'm going to go over, but not by much. Yeah, I'm, but, I want to go over yeah. too, but we have the sentimental attachment to him. So it's really hard. I've got my Carlson Sharks jersey hanging back there that I bought before this season. Had this season happened first, I don't know I would have. I uh, know totally, and hey, I mean, one thing that might help Carlson is if some other players in San Jose do better. Uh, and one guy, another guy on this list is Logan Couture, who you know he's a guy who the patrons pegged to be like a sixty-five point guy, and he totally fell off, right? Like he was less than a fifty-point guy last year for I think the first time in his career. Uh, so I guess let's talk about Couture next, and maybe if you have some optimism about him, maybe that'll help Carlson. Though if Evander Kane doesn't come back, he was like the leading scorer on the team, and we don't know what's going on with him. I guess as now we could just assume that Evander Kane's coming back. Uh, we talked about him, by the way, on the Patreon cast, if you want to hear more Evander Kane analysis. Uh, but yeah, so Logan Couture, actually, he's very similar to another guy, so I'll bring them up together. Couture and Sean Monahan, actually two players who had very similar years last year. Both of these guys were projected by the patrons to be around 65-point players. Both of them ended up pacing for less than 50. Both also had similar seasons. Both Monahan and Couture started strong, and then disappeared. Like Couture is the biggest example of this. He had 22 points in his first 25 games. He was crushing it, and then he like, like fell off a cliff. He like was doing nothing at the end of the season. In my interview with Sheng Peng, he said he thinks that Couture was hurt, which obviously makes me optimistic that Couture could bounce back a little bit. Because how else can you explain just him completely disappearing like he did? Sean Monahan also 20 points in his first 26 games, uh, right in line with the projection we had for him. And then he only managed eight points in his final 24 games. So I know I'm throwing lots of names at you here, and I'm trying to also tie it into Eric Carlson. But yeah. Let's just focus now on Monaghan and Couture. Which of these two guys do you see as like more likely to approach that 65-point projection from last year? And of course, your answer can be none of the above, if you'd like. No, I'm going to go Logan Couture, who last season you wanted desperately to proclaim uh, like a rebroken out 70-plus point player. And I was telling you to hold your horses. And of course, he did fall off after having a really great start. Uh, you mentioned that Sheng Peng on our 32 Beats series said that he thought Couture was injured towards the end of the season. That's funny because that's what your podcast with Brian Com also said last season when we picked up on the fact that Couture's shots on goal, uh, like night in, night out, had just gone nowhere, uh, like fallen off completely. He wasn't shooting the way he's used to shooting, and it shows up in his season-end numbers. He actually had his fewest shots per game uh, since, well, forever, especially like if you don't count his rookie season where he played 25 games, uh, just 2.2 shots per game. Well, he's seen a steady decline in his shots per game, but especially down the stretch towards the end, he was barely shooting. He also suffered uh, on that very weak 
San Jose power play, just six power play points in 53 games. So that's pacing for, you know, 10 or 11, which you'd expect more from someone seeing a 55% share of his team's power play minutes. But there was enough when Couture was healthy to think, look, might not be the 70 point player, but I still think he's going to be able to hit 60, 65. Elon might be a bit rich, but if the Sharks can figure out their power play and be competitive at least when their top players are on the ice, because we know their depth chart is not the thickest, uh, then I, I'm i hopeful that Couture can get back to 65 points, uh, if not just 60. Sean Monaghan, I'm not even booking him for 60. He hasn't been to 60 points for two seasons now. 56-point pace two years ago, 46-point pace last season. And unlike Couture and his injury and his power play shooting percentage, I don't see a ton of excuses for Sean Monaghan. The most glaring thing I see is that he was uh, like a, a, a much higher converting shooter earlier in his career. Like he was in the the low teens approaching 15% at five on five. The last two years, he's been an 8% shooter and his expected goals rates haven't changed a lot. So there's reason to think that Sean Monaghan uh, should be getting closer to 30 goals as he was doing for, uh, for like starting from his sophomore year. He did that for five years in a row. He was a nearly 30 goals or more player. Um, but We've seen a lot of things happen in Calgary that have taken responsibility and freedom away from Monaghan and Goudreau. Like, they sort of go hand in hand. Monaghan is minutes dropped again. He's now down 90 seconds from what he saw two years ago at even strength. His power play role is still there, but like Couture, he didn't really cash in very well. Just nine power play points over 50 games, which... Uh, is like still it's more respectable than Couture's pace, but it's still not great. I don't know how much of this to hang on Monaghan, but I do know that for the second or even third consecutive season, the Flames and their media and their fans all seem willing to give up on Sean Monaghan and just be like, yeah, he had a couple great seasons with Goudreau where Goudreau was really stirring the drink and Monaghan was the perfect chemist uh, com- uh, companion for Goudreau. But uh, lately, there's just not a lot of reason to believe that Monaghan can refine that gear that saw him uh, in like the 60s, 70, even that huge 86 point pace season that he had. So I would have Monaghan, like if we're looking at 60 points as the over under here, I'd have Couture over and Monaghan under. Yeah, I'm with you on both for sure. Definitely not a lot of faith in Monaghan at this point. Obviously, there's some upside there if you want to take a swing if he falls late enough. But if he's not locked in to be centering Goudreau on the top line, and it, you know if it's going to be potentially like a Lindholm, Goudreau, and Kachuk, who's that even leaving Monaghan with, right? Like Blake Coleman and Manjapani. Like, I don't know. It's not uh, someone I'm going to be betting big on, that's for sure. Okay, so let's talk about another pair of players now. And I guess we can give the patrons a break on this one because they were two players that were traded for each other, and obviously the projections came in assuming that they were going to stay on their original teams, and those are Patrick Laine and Pierre-Luc Dubois, who both stunk last year after getting traded. Like, uh, Laine, we were projecting him for 77 points, and why not? He had a great year the previous year in Winnipeg, putting up a similar pace. Then he went to Columbus, 24 points in 46 games. So just 
like a shell of what he was previously. His shots on goal also cratered. He like almost in half, like 3.3 shots per game in 2019-20 with the Jets to 1.8 shots per game last year. Less than two shots per game for Patrick Laine, who's supposed to be like this like high volume shooter. He was supposed to be like the next Ovi with the hits and the shots and the goals. And last year was like nothing like that. Uh, so I had, of course, my interview with Allison Lucan. And she said that the main reason why Laine stunk so much is because he had no one to dish to him. And he's the type of player that needs a player to feed him the puck so he could take advantage of his great shots. That's why his shots went down. That's why obviously the goals went down and she said there that's a big reason why Yarmo Kalinin traded away Cam Atkinson who the Blue Jackets like but they wanted to get Voracek in exchange who's someone who is known for being good at passing the puck and you know finding snipers who are able to score goals so the Blue Jackets are gonna try to help Line succeed he's gonna be playing with Voracek gotta imagine he'll still be getting good deployment so Brian what do you think? Patrick Laine for next year, now playing with Voracek, and who knows who his centerman will be. It might be Roslovic again, or maybe someone else could climb up the depth chart, maybe Max Domi when he comes back from his injury. But yeah, do you think Laine can do better than this 43-point pace from last year? Like, I- I'm assuming it's going to be less than the 76 pace from the year before, but can we say land at 60, or is that even hoping for too much? I think you're about on the nose, Elon, with thinking that Line is probably good for about 60 points. I mean, if you only looked at his numbers, you'd be like, no, no way he's going to get to 60 points. His shot attempt rates uh, were cut almost in half at five on five. His shot on goal rates were actually cut in half at five on five. And Line also saw two fewer minutes a night in all situations, including seeing his power play time and role cut. But we can't just look at those numbers uh, because we know Columbus was supposed to be a fresh start where he could reset, but it wasn't a fresh start at all. It seemed like whatever uh, like hole he had dug himself in in Winnipeg just followed him. He stayed in it when he moved to Columbus. Uh, and he was also in a line blender all year. I don't know if you remember how crazy the Columbus lines were. They were just constantly shifting while Tortorella just seemingly was never ever happy with how the team was playing. And his response to that was to keep pulling the rug out from under them. I mean, Laine had his most common centerman as Jack Roslovic and Max Domi, which like, okay, maybe half decent. Well, not so much Domi, but Roslovic half decent. Uh, but again, with all the line blending, not helpful to Laine. And still those guys are a far cry from Mark Shifley and Brian Little, who Laine had his most successful seasons with. So here we are heading into 2021-22. And we're hoping that this is another fresh start for Laine. Like how many resets has Laine had now? This is, I think, at least three by my count. But as you mentioned, Elon, this time with 100% more Jacob Voracek. And hopefully that will help Patrick Laine have some success. I mean, it's so hard to believe that Laine could be a fluke after scoring 110 goals over his first three seasons. And like you said, there was hype from myself included. I remember way back, like it sounds foolish, but on our first audio almanac, this is egg on my face. So I hope everyone appreciates this about our show. You mentioned that Ovechkin could catch Wayne Gretzky's goal record. And I pitched Poshit and said, here's something better for you. I think Patrick Laine is on track to beat Gretzky's goal record. Like that's the horse you want to bet on. And uh, wow, we've come a long, long way from there. Anyway, 
I don't expect Line A and this reset this time around to end up with him going back to being, you know, that 40, 35, 40 goal scorer that he was in his first three years in the league. I think there's probably a step between now and then, but what can I do? But be hopeful. He's going to take that step. So I, I think 77 points would be unrealistic. I think 70 points would be unrealistic. I expect Oliver Bjorkstrand to lead this team in scoring. So whatever you'd put Bjorkstrand at, and I think I'd start, I'd, I'd say top 70. Uh, so that's like Liney's not getting that many. So I think I actually landed exactly where you did by saying about 60. But there's huge downside here. There's big upside, but there's huge downside. So when you're taking this swing with Liney in your draft, just make sure you're doing it at a proper time and you're not jumping up on him when, you know, there's still guys with uh, like more certain clear cut 65 point potential on the board. Yeah, I don't even think there really is such huge upside, right? Like, I think the downside is a lot more prevalent and prominent yeah. than the upside. So I I don't know, I'd maybe even take the under on 60. I'd hope he could land around there, but I'm not reaching for Patrick Lyon. He's going to have to fall pretty far in my draft before I take a chance on him. If you do draft him, who do you hope centers him? Your candidates are Jack Roslevic, Boone Jenner, I guess uh, Texier, like he can play the wing or center, Sean Corrali, Kevin Stenland. Like, is there what, like, can we met? I, I mentioned how Line A had Shifley and Little during his most productive years. I mean, we're not saying he's going back to those, but I don't think it's helpful that there isn't a great centerman, like an obvious centerman here to help him. He has the winger and Voracek, hopefully, but not a centerman still. Yeah, so, well, it's it's part of the equation. But yeah, someone's going to have to step up, like uh, Sean Corrali. Who knows if maybe in a more prominent role, if he can do something. Uh, I would hope that it could be someone somewhat decent. But, I mean, we have seen players in the past like do well. Like, just last year, Kirill Kaprizov had this amazing season. I know you hate it when I compare people to Kaprizov, because no one's as good as Kaprizov. I love I don't it. Think li- yeah. Yeah. And it's like, Line A clearly has shown he can't drive play like Kaprizov. He needs to be fed the puck, which is unfortunate. Hopefully that's something he can improve. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, okay, then on the other side of that trade, we have Dubois. Patrons projected him for 65. He produced only 21 points in 46 games, so not even close to a 65-point pace. Uh, he's you know still on Winnipeg. Uh, I have no interest in him next season, I'll be honest. Do you? Like Last year, he played with Ehlers and Connor for a lot of the years, so he didn't have a problem with line mates, but he still didn't produce. Uh, I don't see anything to change, so I'm expecting not too much once again. I am also uh, pretty uninterested in Pierre-Luc Dubois this season. In one of our mocks that we're doing, uh, he ended up going in the middle of the 15th round. I was actually considering him, but I ended up taking Dustin Brown instead, just because I figure he seems still to be a, a pretty safe bet. But uh, right after Dubois, uh, Jordan Eberle went, John Gibson, Ilya Samsonov. But looking at, at skaters, Josh Norris, uh, Sharangovich, Nico Hishier. Uh, that's probably the company that makes sense. Although I think I'd prefer Eberly to Dubois, but I think I'd prefer no one to Dubois. Like maybe I'd rather take a swing like Lafreniere and Pujarvi and Kuznetsov all went in the next round and Monaghan, who we just talked about. I would actually be more interested in any of those guys than Pierre-Luc Dubois, who also saw a huge cut when he moved from Columbus to Winnipeg. It's like he left this toxic situation, went to Winnipeg, and lost three minutes a night, saw his lowest ever share of team power play time, just 34% share of Winnipeg's power play minutes for Pierre-Luc Dubois, down from 57% in Columbus the year before. And there's uh, no, like, super unglaring unfairness in Dubois' 
result that I can see, like no variance that means he deserved to do better than he did. Uh, I think the, the kindest thing I could say for Dubois going into this year is last year was weird, both with the Columbus situation and being traded and COVID. It was a fresh start or supposed to be a fresh start that actually wasn't a fresh start. So look, I'm okay to hit the reset button on Dubois, but just keep in mind that if you're resetting, 60 points still is probably the ceiling for what he's able to offer you when he got 60 points in Columbus that came with only like 10 power play points anyway. So don't, uh, he basically always played like he had a second power play role, which he still has in Winnipeg, but he'll have a, a second line role too. Unlike in Columbus when he was a top line player, all this to say, I don't expect him to be able to put up the same five on five scoring in Winnipeg that he did in Columbus, even though his line mates aren't terrible. Like he's probably going to play with Nick Ehlers and Andrew Kopp for starters. Maybe Paul Stasny is in the mix somewhere. Maybe Paul Stasny bumps him out of the top six. There's a lot of reasons to be afraid of Pierre-Luc Dubois this year. uh, And the upside beyond 60 points to me seems completely non-existent. So I will project him to be more likely around 50 points and have a pretty low shot at reaching that 60-point upside. He almost feels this this upcoming season like a Mikhail Backlund, like someone who plays a role down the middle on a team, and maybe he'll have a brief run, but he's not going to have sustained relevance as far as I can see. Right, exactly. And people are still drafting Dubois. No one's drafting Backland. So maybe people are going to need to start adjusting their expectations a bit more. So yeah, I'm with you. Uh, that's unfortunate. Maybe one day, but it's really hard to bet big on a guy who you really don't see any opportunity on the power play. Kind of like Yamamoto, right? Like I feel like if someone's going to get the power play in Winnipeg, give it to freaking Ehlers already before you give it to Pierre-Luc Dubois. Uh, last year, like Paul Stasny took that fourth forward spot on the power play, on the top power play for a lot of the season. All right, Brian, let's finish this off in Detroit. Okay, so we've been talking about all these players who we expected to be superstars by this point and Line and Dubois, like Monaghan, and another guy who fits in with these guys is Dylan Larkin, who let us all down last year. The Patriots projected a whopping 70-point pace only for Larkin to basically be a half-point-per-game guy last year, only 23 points in 44 games. He actually started strong. He had six points in his first six games, but especially after Bertuzzi went down with his injury, that was pretty much all she wrote for Larkin's fantasy relevance. Like people held on to him for the upside, and he was pretty much just a disappointment. I mean, you probably wished in hindsight that you had just dropped him after Bertuzzi got injured. Now going into next year, though, we have A, Bertuzzi is healthy, so maybe they play together. Uh, we've got Pew Suter in the picture, which I think is probably a good thing to have a good second line center to maybe take some of the attention away from the top line. Like, you know, maybe some of the shutdown guys now have to focus on the second line, especially there's also like Verona. Like, who knows if maybe like Detroit's a little bit more deep than they were last year, even though they don't look like so, so deep. Uh, they've got Moritz Sider in the picture. I don't know. Like, I got this impression that like having a good defense or maybe a slightly better defense also helps players maybe just like help get yeah. the play going. Yeah, so all of this said, is is this enough for us to at least expect, you know, again, like I'm like with these other guys, I, I don't want to try to like expect them to go all the way back to what we were hoping for last year. But with Larkin, who was, like I said, like basically like a 46 point player last year, can we expect him to at least get back to like 60 for next year? And then like, how long do we have to wait maybe forever before we get back to like the 70 plus point Larkin? Is it going to be until the rebuild is over, I guess? Yeah, and even if when the rebuild's over, I think when the rebuild's over, ideally, uh, Prashant has been saying this in two year for two years now on our thirty two beats uh, interviews with him that Dylan Larkin is ideally your second line center after a successful rebuild. So I don't know that that seventy plus opportunity is ever going to be out there available to him again. It certainly won't be this year, and but I do think sixty points could be back within reach for Larkin. Last year in Detroit. 
I feel like we talked about how Columbus was a mess and Buffalo was a mess. Detroit was the same. Remember at one point Jeff Blaschel was rotating like uh, everybody off of the top power play and Adam Ernie ended up being like one of the greatest producers they had. It was a weird year in Detroit. And I think Larkin suffered from uh, the weirdness that was happening behind the bench and the decisions that were being made there and all the drama with Mantha. And also he was being hurt by some really unfortunate variants on the ice while Larkin was playing with like was like on the ice uh his teammates were shooting uh with a less than five percent conversion rate at five on five which is really bad like that's something you never like that's one of the lowest numbers in the league usually you'd expect uh, somewhere around nine percent for a forward especially a forward playing on the top line but in detroit there wasn't much help in sight and like i said things were really a mess. You had, like I said, Mantha going up and down and then out. You had Bertuzzi being injured. You had Larkin being bumped off of the top power play very briefly, which didn't seem realistic. And I don't expect that to repeat this year. I think last season was a write-off for Larkin. He didn't look much worse, but everyone else and everything else around him did. And that's why I'm optimistic. Maybe 60 points is uh, uh, still a bridge a, a little too far. I, I would hope with Ron and Bertuzzi, he can get there. I think 55 points is, is a safer place to project him at, but I think 60 points is is definitely attainable. All right. So yeah, I'm hoping for a bounce back from Larkin. I actually traded him away in my Dynasty League, so I don't have to care too much about him anymore. I actually traded him for Bertuzzi and uh, JT Miller. So I'm happy with the return. Uh, I think I gave up like a John Marino. We don't have to talk about him. Uh, so okay, uh, we'll see what happens. We've got a lot of potential bounce back candidates. So it seems like from this episode, Brian, for the most part, we're not expecting any of them to bounce back much. The one I'm most excited about about all the players we talked about, like I said, is Ryan Pulock. So we'll see if he can make me look a little <laughs> smart. I know you're not so much. Well, no, I am. I'm I'm definitely into the value he can produce. I think you're a little more optimistic about what he can do quarterbacking the top unit, which even if he does that, Elon, it's never been a great place to produce from in Long Island. We've talked about Matt Barzal and how his upside is held back by the fact that the top power play unit is not a massive producer. Uh, the Islanders are not a great team on which to collect power play points. So I'd still say that holds him back. But yes, I think I'm with you that Pulak is the safest choice of all of these guys if i'm picking somebody else to have a meaningful bounce back uh call me sense of well i think larkin is probably a decent bet couture eric carlson i really want to say i'm with you on the over 47 points i think he can peak up above 50 but you just have to be yeah. careful not to take him too soon by the way the islanders are an interesting team for next year like they still don't have like a lot of free agents sign that people are expecting them to sign. Like it's basically been assumed that Kyle Palmieri and Zach Parisi are both going to the Islanders, but apparently they're like waiting. And I read like some rumors on Reddit or something that it's because they're trying to trade for Tarasenko, but like they don't want teams to know what their cap space is because they want to like, you know, not give away too much information for their trade negotiations. So like theoretically, <laughs> like this Islanders team might be completely different and might have all like, you know, they might have Parisi and they might have Tarasenko and who knows what they're going to do. They have Anders Lee coming back. So who knows it, like, you know, maybe like Dallas, like we talked about in our last episode, this could be a team that potentially could change their identity, but I'm not going to bank on it because the Islanders have been pretty successful. So why would they? Uh, but anyway, Brian, blah, blah, blah. Let's wrap this baby up because this is the second uh, podcast we've recorded tonight. Hopefully people enjoyed this episode of Keeping Carlson going through all of these players that we and the patrons were overrating going into last season. Uh, we also hope you enjoyed the episode that we released on Monday morning, talking about all of the players that we like underrated going into the year. Uh, if you liked these 
these episodes, then we would recommend, first of all, go back and check out some of the other shows. We've been doing shows. You might be just like getting back into fantasy hockey now and starting to, you know, resubscribe to Keeping Carlson. We tried to drop interesting episodes all throughout the summer. Our 32 Beats interview series, all really interesting interviews. Plus, uh, this uh, series we did breaking down all the off-season transactions. I'm really proud of that uh, piece of work that we put out there. So yeah, check out all the good stuff. And then most importantly, make sure to subscribe because we're going to keep putting out content. We've got all the big guns, Brian. We've got our, I don't know, gun loaded. I guess if I'm putting out the big guns, then that means we have multiple guns. I don't know what the word, I'm not a big gun guy. I'm more of a pacifist, really. Yeah, but we're going to put out some good episodes. We've got our, like, Schmore Goalies board coming up. We're going to have a Calder Candidates episode with Victor Nuno. We're going to look at Dom Lushishin's projections, obviously get him on. Like, all the shows that we're excited to Oh, looking at the Yahoo rankings and making fun of them and talking about which players seem like good value. So there's a lot coming, so make sure you're subscribed to Keeping Carlson. If you really like the show, want to help support us, we've got our Patreon, keepingcarlson.com slash patron, where you join our Discord community, get access to our patron cast, and, of course, join the ultimate patron, Fantasy Hockey League, the Cupful, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League. We'd love to have you join us. Um, you can get information about all of that at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. And if you want Cupful specific information, of course, cupful.com, K-K-U-P-F-L.com. It's all linked in the show notes. Don't worry about it. But okay, with that, let's cue the outro music. Brian, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey, empowered by our patrons, especially our super supporters, Tom, Derek, Rob, and Patty. Thank you so much. Logo art by brandonweave.com. Outro music by Pat Roach. This episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Tools, Dauber Prospects, Natural Stat Trick, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, HockeyGoalies.org, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, and NBC Sports Edge. All right. Great job as always, Brian. I think we've got another Beat Writer episode coming out before our next episode. So yeah, we're going to keep the content rolling. And we're looking forward to bringing you all, all that we got going into the next season. We sure are. And going into next season, it's a great time to invite your friends into fantasy hockey and do what you can to make sure they know fantasy hockey is for everyone.